wonders of technology. So, have you ever wondered why there are no dead penguins on the ice in Antarctica? Where do they all go? Well, wonder no more. I'm here to tell you. It is a known fact that the penguin is a very ritualistic bird that lives an extremely ordered and complex life. Many penguins are loyal to their exact nesting site, often returning to the same rookery in which they were born. They are committed to their family and their social circles, and they will mate for life as well as main con maintain contact with their offspring. And when a penguin is found dead on the ice surface, members of the family and their social circle have been known to dig holes in the ice using only their wings and beaks. And when the hole is deep enough, the dead bird is rolled into the hole and buried. And then they pack the ice back into the hole, and the male penguins gather around in a circle around this fresh grave, and they sing, freeze a jolly good fellow, freeze a jolly good fellow. Now that's, t that's pretty terrible, isn't it? But it makes a point. Isn't it interesting how a flowery description can be so misleading? And false teachers use flowery language to lead people from the truth. That's one of the things that we learned in this lesson. So I don't know if you feel like I do that we went from the frying pan into the fire from Zechariah to Second Peter, and especially this chapter, but here we are. This is a very hard chapter, and I know you all did a lot of work on your lessons, so here we go, here we go. Life in our world is a cosmic struggle between good and evil. It is an all-out war between God and his followers and Satan and his. And behind all false teachers and prophets is the father of lies himself, Satan. Times haven't changed, and those outside the church who wage war against God's truth are easy for us to identify as God's enemies. But there's an even greater danger when these enemies infiltrate the church and claim to belong to God and represent him. Spiritual growth and survival depend. Yeah. Do we need to? Oh, okay. So sorry. I'm seeing these hand signals. <laughs> Secret code. Um, Spiritual growth and survival depend on being able to discern who teaches truth and who does not. And in chapter 2, Peter minces no words in describing false teachers, their character, and their motives. Verse 1, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Peter begins his expose of the false teachers by telling us how they operate. They secretly introduce destructive heresies. Now, the Greek word here for secretly means to bring in by the side of or introduce along with others. So the false teachers are not going to openly declare themselves against Christ, but they're going to do it secretly, meaning they bring in heresies in an underhanded, scheming way. They will couch their false teaching in biblical terminology carefully choosing language that gives the aura of respectability, but at the same time, they move away from the truth. They may teach something that is actually true, but right next to that truth, they will slip in a lie, and the truth serves as the cover for the heresy they teach. 
It may appear to be in line with scripture, but it will be slightly off, making it harder to detect as error. And what Peter tells us, the lies they teach are destructive. They lead men and women away from Jesus Christ who can save and redeem them and instead lead them straight to hell. Peter repeats himself and says they teach destructive heresies that bring destruction. Now that Greek word for destruction that's used twice in this verse, it doesn't mean annihilation or that a person ceases to exist. But what Peter means is they have reached the point of no return in terms of salvation and that that person is going to spend eternity in hell. Some, some translations call these damnable heresies, and that is exactly what they are because that's what they do to the people who believe them. False teachers do not announce, I'm a false teacher, and if you follow me, you will end up in hell. They don't do that. They disguise themselves as shepherds and pastors. They disguise themselves as professors at Christian colleges. I found a quote from a seminary professor who said, we must find some way of facing the fact that Jesus Christ is the product of the same evolutionary process as the rest of us. Teaching in a seminary, scary, isn't it? These people may speak favorably about God, but as we know, appearances can be deceiving. And Jesus said he called them ravenous wolves. They are deceivers, and they will destroy you. Well, what is the root of their heresy? Peter tells us they deny the master who bought them. And the word deny literally means to say no to. It means to refuse. Well, who do they say no to? The master who bought them. The word for master here is depotes. It means one who possesses supreme authority. We get the word despot. We think of it in a negative context, but it's, context, but it's somebody who has all power. And Peter is saying that the supreme sacrilege of these false teachers is that they deny the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. They could name Christ, preach in his name, cast out demons in his name, but they say no to what? To his lordship. And what does it mean? It means they will not submit their lives to his rule. John MacArthur said to deny the lordship of Jesus Christ is not to be relegated to second-class Christianity. It is to be damned, serious. Peter finishes his description by saying they deny the master who bought them. And this is a little bit confusing at first because it's clear that these people were not true believers. So why does he say this? He's, I think he's speaking in accordance with what the false teachers professed about themselves. I think he's being sarcastic. Those who claim to be redeemed by their deeds and their doctrine, uh, I'm sorry, those who claim to be redeemed deny by their deeds and their doctrine the master that they claim has bought them. And they are no better than the false teachers of Israel. They claim to be Christians. They said they believed in Christ, that he bought them. And they did this so it gave them an entree into the church. That's how they get their foot in the door. If they'd said they didn't believe in him as master and God, they never would have received a hearing for their false teachers, for their teaching. And so I think Peter was merely taking their estimate of themselves at face value. Well, verse 2 tells us that their plan was working. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. Peter doesn't say that only a few will follow them. He says many. Well, why will there be many people? Because of what they preach. Many will follow their sensuality. And that means sexual immorality and the absence of moral restraint. 
Uh, the Greek word pictures a man so enslaved by lust that he's lost all, <clears throat> excuse me, all sense of shame. And it's, it's really a reminder of what Jeremiah had said when he described faithless Judah. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they had done? They certainly were not ashamed, and they did not know how to blush. Well, what is the result of this? The way of truth will be maligned. And this is one reason the world mocks Christianity today. It has been maligned by people who claim to represent Christ, but who have said no to his lordship in their lives, and they have been unmasked as lecherous, lewd, immoral people. And because of them, there is a reproach on the way of truth. And it's also confusing to non-believers because how do they know the difference between a real Christian and somebody who merely claims to be one? So true Christians desire to live the kind of life that makes the gospel believable. Let your life shine before men in such a way they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Paul told the Thessalonians, walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We are called to live lives that are consistent with the gospel. False teachers do not live this way, and they bring disgrace to the cause of Christ, whom they claim to represent but don't. Verse 3, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Peter is telling us that the underlying motive of these false teachers is greed or insatiable selfishness. They want money. They want your money. And we get our word emporium from the word exploit. So they want to do business with you. They give you false words that they twist or mold in order to get you to give them your money. And that's what they're really after. Well, Peter's readers must be thinking, well, why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't he just annihilate these evil men? And Peter tells them, for their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. God decided long ago they would be judged, and their destruction and damnation will happen, and God has not fallen asleep at the wheel. And to prove his point, in verses 4 through 10, he gives us three examples of God's judgment to illustrate his claim that God will certainly judge these false teachers. Verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Okay, well, the first word is if. And that could really be understood as the word since because it makes the assumption of something Peter's readers really knew to be true. So we could read that, since God did not spare angels. So Peter is, is telling us that there are certain angels who were guilty of pride and rebellion, and they were cast into hell or Tartarus, which is a temporary place of punishment for this particular group of angels. And these fallen or even angels have been confined. They're contained in this pit of darkness. Eventually, they're going to be transferred from there to the lake of fire for eternal torment. So I think Peter's first point is since God didn't spare angelic beings who are higher created beings than men, well, what makes you think he's going to spare the false teachers who are lesser beings who pervert his truth and spread corruption? Well, then he moves on to a second illustration. God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. God did not spare the angels who sinned, and God did not spare the ancient world which sinned either. Genesis tells us that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
and Peter reassures his readers that Noah and his family were the exception to the world of the ungodly. So do the false teachers think they can escape God's judgment because of their large numbers, because there's so many of them? And Peter's message is clear. God will judge evil even if it involves the entire human race with the exception of only eight people. He then gives his third illustration. He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. God did not spare the angels who sinned. God did not spare the ancient world which sinned. God did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah in their sin either. Now you remember Sodom and Gomorrah, <clears throat> the sin of homosexuality was openly and brazenly practiced, and God reduced them to ashes. There was nothing left. And there are, to this day, no ancient ruins for archaeologists to explore because they were obliterated from the earth. God's judgment was total and final. God didn't spare the angels. God did not spare the ancient world. God did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah. And these three illustrations graphically portray that these false teachers will not escape God's judgment and ultimate destruction. But not only were Noah and his family saved, so were Lot and some of his family. If he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Righteous Lot. God calls Lot righteous. Were you as surprised as I was to read that that's how he was described? Yes, the Bible can be shocking. When we meet Lot in Genesis 13, he is worldly, shallow, superficial, selfish, and unwise. And by the time chapter 19 rolls around, he is morally weak, offering his own daughters to satisfy the lusts of perverts. Uh, don't even get me going. When the angel tells him to leave, Lot dilly-dallies and hesitates and literally has to be dragged out of town. And then he argues with the angel about where he's going to go. After he is finally rescued, he gets drunk and ends up impregnating his own daughters. God calls him righteous three times in two verses. God is not wrong, so how are we to understand this? Because I think this is one of the big issues of this chapter. Lot was made righteous the same way that you and I are made righteous, by trusting in the God of Abraham. Lot was righteous because he had right standing before God. He was not delivered because his behavior was righteous. He made many bad choices, many. But he was delivered because of his status before God that came from faith. And frankly, ladies, that is good news for all of us, every single one of us, because our behavior does not match our faith more times than we would like to admit. Amen. Peter tells us that Lot, okay, Peter tells us that Lot was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, and his righteous soul was tormented by their lawless deeds. Lot hated the brazen defiance of God he saw in the world around him, and this is a sign of a true believer. Sin bothers us, and we grieve for the sins of others and for their hatred of God that leads to this evil behavior. 
Now I've got a handout for you afterwards with a whole page on lot, an excellent summary and some good points to consider. Written probably a couple hundred years ago, the language is a bit archaic. I tried to clean it up a bit, but I think it'll prove helpful to you. So we'll get that at the end. Okay, here's the good news. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Just as God rescued Noah and his family, just as God rescued Lot and his family, Peter reminds his readers that God knows how to rescue the godly. And for the first time in this chapter, Peter calls God Lord. He uses the word kurios. And that's a word that specifically emphasizes God's supreme authority, his absolute ownership, and sovereign power. God has supreme authority over both the ungodly and the unrighteous and the sovereign power to fulfill his responses to both. Now, this is what I love. This is my favorite part of this whole chapter. The Greek word for rescue means to snatch from danger by drawing to oneself. That's how God rescues us. He draws us to himself. It's the picture of a soldier on the battlefield who runs to rescue a fallen comrade, and he pulls him to safety. And Paul also uses this word uh, in Colossians 1.13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. God rescues us like he rescues everyone. He draws us to himself. Peter doesn't promise that they will avoid all troubles and suffering and trials like the prosperity te false teachers do today, but he reminds them that God knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. Well, what temptation is Peter talking about? The temptation to fall away from the faith, the temptation to compromise personal holiness and end up polluted just like the rest of the world, the temptation to believe that God doesn't care or doesn't have the power to help you. The temptation to believe that God is not able to rescue his followers. A faithful God is not only able to comfort and sustain those who wait upon him, he will do it most wisely. He knows how to dispense his grace most advantageously to those who truly love him and cast their care upon him. So Peter has reminded his readers that God will save them from judgment and condemnation like he did for Noah and his family. And then he reminds them that God can rescue them from temptation like he did for Lot. Well, and Peter now opens fire on the false teachers by exposing their character. The, uh, the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment, especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. False teachers are those who indulge the flesh, which he describes starting in verse 13. But first, he demonstrates their arrogant audacity. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Peter is telling us that these false teachers are so brazen and arrogant, they revile or blaspheme these angelic majesties. And that word is doxa. It means glories. It was in your study. They blaspheme angelic glories. And I think he is specifically, most commentators think he's specifically referring to angels or even evil angels, fallen angels. Well, why is it wrong for these false teachers to revile or slander these evil angels? And it's because, I think, that they still maintain a certain level of glory that was given to them by their creator. Even though they're fallen, they still bear the stamp of their glorious origin. 
and we, as human beings, lesser creatures, are to avoid presumptuous irreverence toward them. Well, Peter continues, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. Peter introduces these good angels to contrast their behavior with the disrespectful attitude of the false teachers. And although good angels are stronger, they're more powerful, they're higher than evil, evil angels, even these good angels don't bring reviling judgments or make slanderous accusations against these glorious fallen beings. So it's interesting that holy angels don't do to demons that are inferior to them what the foolish false teachers do to demons that are superior to them. And that is why Peter continues his rant in verse 12. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. I mean, he, he is teed off. And the very fact that they revile and blaspheme and speak evil indicates they don't have any sense. They're like unreasoning animals. And Peter says that these false teachers are going to end up at the slaughterhouse the same way these animals are just because of their arrogance and sinfulness. And Peter assures his readers that they will be paid back with harm for the harm they've caused. So after describing the arrogance of the false teachers, Peter then describes their sensuality and their personal moral failures in eight ways. As if that wasn't enough, he really winds up. First of all, they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. And in Peter's day, indulgence of sinful pleasure usually took place under the cover of darkness. So practicing such hedonistic activities in broad daylight is just a sure sign that these False teachers are completely shameless about their indulgence. It's impossible for them to be embarrassed. Second, they're stains and blemishes. And those words just mean they picture filthy and disgraceful behavior. Third, they revel in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Now, carouse is too strong of a word here. It really should be translated feast, as they feast with you. And I think Peter is referring to the early Christian love feast that was held in conjunction with the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And he rebukes these false teachers for indulging their own sinful pleasures even as they continue to join with other Christians at the church's fellowship meals. Fourth, they have eyes of adultery that never cease from sin. And Peter uses strong language and he claims that the false teachers have eyes full of adulterous women. And by this, he means that these false teachers are so addicted to sex that in their lust, they look at every woman as a potential sexual partner. Fifth, they un entice unstable souls. Uh, you know, it's bad enough that the false teachers behave this way, but Peter now shows the influence they have on others. They seduce the unstable. And the Greek word for entice is a word that would have been used as a lure in hunting or fishing. So it pictures using bait. And they trap these people. And he specifies that unstable souls are vulnerable to their ploys. So the opposite of unstable is to be firmly established in the truth. That's what chapter 1 was all about. And it's precisely those who fail to become solidly grounded in their faith that these false teachers find to be easy prey. They can go get them. Six, they have hearts trained in greed. And that word trained is, we give it our word gymnasium from that. It's like they go to the gym and work out so they can be real proficient at their greed. They're, they're excellent at getting money because they have worked at it so hard. 
seventh, they're accursed children. You'll never think of going to the gym as the same way, will you? Seventh, they are accursed children. Peter is in a full sanctified rage at this point. He says again they're damned to hell. They are marked by a curse. And he just keeps reminding us of what their ultimate fate is. Eighth, they have forsaken the right way. They have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, son of Beor. And the right way, it's an Old Testament metaphor, and it refers to obedience to God's word. It meant to walk in obedience to God. Forsaking the right way is an act of deliberate intent. It is willful rebellion. So in going astray, these false teachers have followed the pattern of Balaam, who was used repeatedly as a negative example in Scripture. He appeared on the scene as the Israelites were camping. He made himself available to the highest bidder because he loved the wages of unrighteousness. He um, did not do what God commanded. He had his donkey talk back to him. He, he was so unreasoning, he would not get the message the first time. And he was guilty of the horrendous sin of leading other people into sin so he could make money. And so he received a rebuke for his transgression for a mute donkey speaking with a voice of a man restrained the madness or the insanity of the prophet. Peter highlights just the utter foolishness of Balaam by noting how he was rebuked by his donkey, a, a beast that couldn't even talk, and yet he had a conversation with him. And Peter, in fact, concludes that he concludes he must have been insane because the donkey understood more about spiritual reality than Balaam did. So he is saying that these false teachers are just like this greedy, insane, unreasoning man. And then he, after this scathing description, he shifts focus and he talks about the ineffectiveness and the utter uselessness of their teaching. They are springs without water, misdriven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. And I think these metaphors capture the hollow and in, uh, insubstantial nature of their message. You know, in a dry climate like Israel, a spring of water was a marvelous blessing. It was necessary for life. And so a dry spring is not only disappointing, but it's useless to a weary traveler who needs water. And it's the same thing with the false teacher's message. It disappoints the spiritual pilgrim by promising spiritual vitality. It promises life, but it doesn't deliver it. There's nothing there. And this is also the essence of hypocrisy. These false teachers pretend to have something, and they don't even possess spiritual life themselves. And Peter just says, blackest darkness is reserved for them. So in verses 18 and 19, he then explains why the false teachers are consigned to the darkness of hell. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. False teachers disillusion and harm people with their doctrine. Their words are arrogant. They're characterized by vanity, by floweriness, like the joke, you know, all this stuff about the penguins. They appeal to lustful desires, but they don't target just anybody. They target those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Well, what does that mean? These are people who are still in the process of escaping the entanglements of their past lives. These are new converts still in the process of distancing themselves from the values and lifestyle of the pagan society to which they recently belonged. So it makes sense to think that these false teachers are going to go after new converts who are not well-grounded in their faith. Verse 19, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by what a man is overcome, by this he's enslaved. 
Another tactic to entice new converts away from their faith is to promise them freedom. Well, what kind of freedom are they promised? Well, I think given all of Peter's comments about sexual immorality, it probably makes sense to think that they were promised freedom from moral requirements. However, the people promising them freedom were themselves enslaved to sex and immorality. So I think, I think Steve in one of his tapes said that's like a 900-pound man trying to sell a diet book. It doesn't make sense. That's what it is. Verse 20, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. And I think this verse makes it clear that at one point, these false teachers had claimed to be Orthodox Christians, and they outwardly seemed to have escaped the defilements of the world system. And they must have had some kind of religious experience, but their hearts had never been touched by the grace of God. And Peter says that these teachers again became entangled in the defilements of the world. And he pictures them as being so entangled in them, they're like a fish that's hopelessly trapped in a net. So this isn't a picture of just accidental encounter with the world and they got a little bruised by it. No, no, no. This is a deliberate involvement. So these uh, apostates did not have salvation and then lose it. They never had salvation in the first place. They had reformation, but they didn't have salvation. And they had been delivered from some elements of paganism, but they did not have true Christianity. They had knowledge about Christ, but they did not have a heart for Christ. Because remember what Peter said, they denied the master. They said no to his lordship. Verse 21, for it would be better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. Why? Because when someone has full knowledge of Christ and turns away, his judgment shall be greater. And when someone has tried Christianity and says, it didn't work for me, it's hard for that person to believe that they didn't experience the real thing. Judas would be an example of an apostate who abandoned the faith. He personally knew Jesus. He personally knew him. He knew his teachings. And his life changed to the point that the other disciples put him in charge of the money. But he was never a true believer. Verse 22, it's happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog, this is my favorite verse, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Well, simply put, dogs will act like dogs, thus showing they were dogs all along, and the same is true for pigs. The, the, the actions of the false teachers reflect who they have really been all along. So Peter teaches that it's possible for a person to have knowledge of Christ and even some outward conformity and morality and still not be saved. One who has full intellectual knowledge of Christ and then turns away is guilty of apostasy. He then returns to his old life of sin because he has no real heart for God. And I think the last verse of this chapter gives us conclusive evidence that these false teachers were certainly never born again. These false teachers were never true children of God because believers are never compared to dogs or swine, unclean animals. We are the sheep of his flock. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish 
and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So for application, very quickly, it's on the sheet. Is Jesus the master of your life? Do you yield to him as your Savior and Lord, or do you just give intellectual assent to his teachings and go along with the flow? Are you certain that you will escape God's judgment? Would God describe you as righteous? Why? Does the sin of the world grieve you? Do you mourn for those caught in Satan's traps? And do you think after this chapter you now know how to recognize a false teacher because that's the safest, surest place that you can be? Okay, also I want to tell you briefly, I know I'm over a couple seconds, um, on your one of your pages I've got three really good resources for you to help you with your Bible study. Again, it's on the handout, Lakeside's Chapel. We would all be lost without Steve's teaching, and all of his sermons are available. You can sort them by the book, and you can listen and get grounded. www.gtygrace2u is John MacArthur's website, the same sort of thing, free resources. And a third one, Precept Austin, uh, started out of Precept Ministries, commentaries, Greek, Hebrew, words, analysis, outlines, everything you would need, and, and it's on your handout that I've got for you. So, ladies, a tough chapter, lots to think about, but I want everyone to go away so that you know in your heart if you're truly saved, if you truly have, if God would describe you as righteous because of what his son did for you and not because you just merely agree with all of this. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for the surprises. Thank you for the encouragement in it. I pray that you would help us discern our own hearts, and I pray that you would help us discern the teachings of, of uh, those people who would lead us astray and that we would see it for what it is. I, just, I pray for wisdom for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.